Peter King is my favorite football analyst, and every Tuesday he writes an article summing up the past week's events. The title of the article is the same every single week, but the substance changes. So without his permission, but what I hope he accepts as a form of flattery, I borrow from Peter King the title of his article for the title of tonight's sermon. Five things I think I think. It's a list in no particular order of things that I've been thinking a lot about over the past months and even year. Things I think we need to be aware of in order to change and things I'd like to share with you. The five things that I boiled it down to are in no particular importance. They're just all on my mind. So here's what I think I think. I think that I think I love Pope Francis. I'm actually supposed to meet him, please God, this coming Friday, which is inopportune for me, because were I to meet him this past week, I could start off the sermon by saying to all of you, <laughs> when I was talking with Pope Francis, we were sharing our thoughts on this particular issue. So instead, I had to craft the sermon in a way which would let you all know that I'm seeing him on Friday, but I have nothing of which to tell you about. I digress. What I love about Pope Francis is not his name, and it's not his accent. It's not even the white robe he wears. It looks a lot like this one. What I love about Pope Francis is how he leads. Because he leads from his heart and not from a script. When he was asked, what did he think about homosexuality, which is a softball to any Catholic priest because it's expressly forbidden from the Vatican and the church, Francis threw a softball back, but with a little bit of a slider on it. Francis said, who am I to judge? He is the Pope after all. And if he says, who am I to judge? What a reminder to each of us. When a man who was plagued with a facial deformity and all types of disfigurements was standing in a crowd where he was offering mass, Pope Francis came down from the crowd and touched the man's face and kissed it repeatedly, something that the man said people never did before, that when they saw him, they normally ran away or got repulsed or couldn't bear to look at him. And Francis was the first to touch him and to kiss him because he knew that's what he needed. And he did it instinctively. I like people who lead instinctively. I like people who lead with their moral compass and aren't governed by fear. And I really wish more leaders in the world, both Jewish leaders and political leaders, would lead that way. Last year, I got pushed back really hard by a whole gaggle of my colleagues for an article in which I penned in response to Peter Beinart. Peter Beinart is a journalist who wrote last year before the high holidays, encouraging all rabbis of all faiths and streams not to talk about Israel from the Bema on the high holidays. Well, I thought, who is Peter Beinart to be giving this information? And why does he tell rabbis what to speak about and what not to speak about? So I penned a response to him from the article in which he wrote in the New York Times. And my response was a simple one. And it was, rabbis, find your courage and speak about what you want to speak about. If you have feelings about Israel, talk about Israel and share it. And so many of my colleagues thought I was crazy. They came to me and they said to me, whether it was at APAC or whether it was at a United Synagogue meeting or a rabbinical assembly conference, David, we never talk about Israel. And I said to them, 
Why do you never talk about Israel? God, if I never spoke about Israel, I'd be silent. (laughs) And they said, we're afraid of offending someone. I said, what does that mean? They said, we're afraid if we say something that's in our heart that we really feel, that's either in favor of the settlements or opposed to the settlements, behind Bibi or behind Bougie, whatever it is that we're gonna offend someone who matters in the shul. To which I responded to them with this phrase, the job of a good rabbi is to afflict the comfort, the comfortable, and to comfort the afflicted. Our job is not to make sure that everyone walks in and out of here not offended at all times. And by offended, I don't mean to hurt feelings, but I mean to jar us at times and to speak our minds and to let our compass continue to lead us from our heart and from our soul. But it's not limited to rabbis in Israel. There's so many other times where we don't listen to what our heart has to say because we think a script will tell us better what to do. One of the most popular questions in my office is this. Rabbi, I go to shivas all the time. Sadly, so many of my friend's parents are dying, and I never know what to say. What am I supposed to say, Rabbi? Well, I don't know if Pope Francis has ever been to a shiva, but I bet you he wouldn't be plagued with that problem. Because Pope Francis would probably walk in, and he wouldn't be beholden to any script, and he would look someone in the eye and say, Michael, I'm sorry your dad died. What's the hardest part of the day for you right now? Tell me some of the memories that you have with him. I know he's very proud of you. He would just speak from his heart. He would speak from his soul and tell you what's on his mind. And that makes him authentic and sincere. And I believe there are so many leaders in all stripes of our lives today that have no sense of authenticity or sincerity. And it takes someone like Pope Francis to take up that dried up oasis that we need and to fill it up with that level of authenticity and sincerity and all of us find ourselves drinking from it. We're not gonna get what we say to the next person or how we lead right every time and I'm sure, I know for a fact that there have been times I've spoken about Israel or inclusivity or the interfaith or what have you in this synagogue and there have been people who have celebrated what I said and people who were hurt and upset by what I said. So first of all, let me say for those who are hurt, I apologize. Was never my intention to cause any one person hurt. I don't apologize for speaking my mind, but I do apologize for causing you hurt. And when we speak what we believe, we don't always get it right, but we all seem to have this barometer in our hearts that knows when someone is trying to say something that connects to us versus something that is scripted. I think all of us can learn from people of different faith and especially from this Pope and making sure that the leaders that we follow are people who are sincere and authentic and that we ourselves find a sense of honesty and sincerity and authenticity and the words we speak, the values we hold and what we believe in. There's nothing to be ashamed of in that process. The second thing that I think I think is that we're about to enter a civil war that's fueled by the way in which we speak to one another. Yitzhak Rabin, of blessed memory, the prime minister of the state of Israel was killed almost 20 years ago because of nasty rhetoric. 
Now, some of you might say, no, he was killed by an assassin, and that's true. But the real powder in the keg of that gun was not the gunpowder that shot the bullet. It was the nasty rhetoric that existed in all different streams that thought differently than Yitzhak Rabin. Now, there's some people who celebrate Yitzhak Rabin as a champion of the state of Israel, as someone who fought for its independence, as someone who was the head of its defense, as someone who served as its prime minister and dedicated his entire life to making that dream a reality. And other people who blame him for the loss of life of their loved one and putting the entire state in jeopardy, in harm's way. But there isn't anything that could condone the level of nasty talk and speech that preceded his death, where rallies had SS uniforms draped on a figurine of Yitzhak Rabin with his face and touted throughout all of the assembly halls, and people were not shutting it down. You know that quote, the place where they burn books, they will soon burn people? The same happened then, and it's about to happen again. Ben Nelson gave a Devar Torah a few weeks ago. He stole some of my thunder, and he did it beautifully. Ben Nelson said that Dov Heikind, who's an assemblyman from New York, who was opposed to the deal with Iran, put other Congress people and senators under the fire with a sharp skewer with phraseology and terminology that is disgusting. It was Dov Heikind that said, about some people who have very strong voting records with the state of Israel, that these people are setting up for a second Holocaust. These people are no different than the cop-outs who led the Jews to their death. It sounds just like one of the rallies after the Oslo Accord. It sounds just like those moments that questioned the real motives of Yitzhak Rabin. And it's not limited to Dove Heikend. We find it in our community here in the synagogue. We found it in Bergen County. We found it in New Jersey, in the tri-state area. We found it throughout the country of people who are speaking in a way that has no respect for the other. Even the leader in all the polls today for the Republican nomination for the president is someone who has gotten to that place by denigrating far too many other people whether they're people running against him or other people in the world. And that divisive and cruel rhetoric must stop. It's not limited to these examples of the Iran deal, but this civil war could break out at any time. It could break out over the Iran deal. It could also break out over two political parties that are happening in Israel. And you saw how close the last three elections were in Israel between the Likud and the labor parties. What a divided front it is. The same civil war can break out between the religious parties in Israel and the secular parties in Israel. This same civil war can happen between people who are here and differences that are felt on all fronts, whether it's gun control or how we educate in core curriculum, people who have mistaken their passion for a license to speak cruel and nasty words and hurtful statements that cut others off at the knees and have nothing to do with merits. In my job as the president of the New York Board of Rabbis, I have to oversee many communal affairs that happen in the tri-state area. And one great affair that happens every year 
is the Israel Day Parade. But this year, there was tremendous controversy with the Israel Day Parade. You see, there were a group of people who wanted to march in the Israel Parade who, and I am not calling them by this term, but others are, they are very left-wing in their political views for the state of Israel. And then there are others who march who are very opposed to these organizations because they find them undermining to the very value of the state of Israel. Some of these organizations might include the New Israel Fund on the left and the JCC Watch on the right. Not the JCC, but the JCC Watch. And these two groups got into such a heated argument and got so many other groups to join them by saying, if they march, I won't march. And if they don't march, then I won't march. To the point that there were literally more protesters not marching in the parade than there were people marching. It's like the great Talmudic debate where we argue with God. What is God's will? And God says, needs kuni banai. My children have defeated me. To the point where so many people are protesting the Israel Day Parade because this one's on a political stream they don't understand and that one's on a political stream they don't understand and they sit and protest on the sidelines with placards as opposed to marching down Fifth Avenue with a sense of pride that we've only had for 67 years out of the last 2,000. We should all be embarrassed and ashamed of ourselves. All of us. That our talk and our rhetoric has led to such a place of divisiveness. Events like the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, they always serve as defibrillators that shock us back into a way of behaving and speaking like we were taught to, like we're supposed to. But the problem with the defibrillator is most often it goes on someone's chest when they're having a heart attack. And it's often too late. A lot of people die even with the defibrillator on. We can't put a defibrillator on and pray that it works and we get to where we need to be. We have to learn from our past mistakes and we must be kinder with our words. And there's two things to do. When you see people talking that way, have the courage to call them out and make sure you don't talk that way either. Disagree on merits, be passionate in your views, but be kind to the other. The third thing that I think I think is that we are breeding an entire generation of cowards, of people who are afraid to lead and people who are equally afraid to fail. One of my favorite quotes in the world is given by Aesop in one of his fables where he says, it is easy to be brave from a very safe distance. I think that we are making people look like they're brave, but in fact, they're not very brave at all. I'm gonna give you a few examples. One of my favorite segments at night to watch or even on YouTube is Jimmy Kibble when he has celebrities read mean tweets. Anyone ever seen this before? He has different celebrities from all over walks of life, whether they're sports people or whether they're in entertainment on television or the big screen, and they read tweets that nasty people have written about them, which are mean and hurtful. Well, I'm not a celebrity, but I am a public figure of sorts. And sometimes I get these kinds of emails and tweets, sometimes from people I don't even know, who hide behind the comfort of the electronic world to hurl these grenades over a wall. Now, over the years, I've thickened my skin and become a lot tougher. I'm not Teflon, and I never want to be Teflon. I never want to get to a point where nothing pierces me because I'll lose my sense of humanity 
and sensitivity, but I can deal with it much better than what I used to. But most times when people send these kinds of notes or do these kinds of things, I've found an antidote. I call them up on the phone and I ask them either to read the email that they just sent to me, to me on the phone, or to come into my office and discuss it. And when they come into my office, I have them read exactly what they wrote. I print it out for them. A lot of times they tell me, Rabbi, I I already deleted the email. And I say, that's okay, stay there, I'll forward it back to you. (laughs) There hasn't been a time yet where anyone can get through the first sentence. Not a time yet. Now, by the way, it's not limited to me as a rabbi. A lot of times we talk this way to our cousins, to our friends, to our neighbors, to the guy in the store. And we've been even meaner through the medium of social media that gives us this masquerade, this barricade, this protecting layer, this force field that makes us think that we're impenetrable from anything coming back at us, but we can be lethal with all of the swords, daggers, and grenades we throw over it. And it's a real problem. What does real courage look like? To me, real courage is sitting down with someone and saying, what bothers you? What's hurt you? What's caused you pain? Real courage is what I call the walk. The walk that I take over the last three weeks with everyone in my life that matters. I take a walk with every person, and it's the hardest thing I do for my entire year. I take a walk with my wife and with my kids and with my friends and with my family members, and I look them in the eye and I say to them, I'm so sorry for all the times I was a jerk about X, Y, and Z, or A, B, and C. And it was wildly insensitive of me to be this way, to say these things to you, to do this to you. And I know when I did it, it hurt you. And I can't explain why I did it, but I'm embarrassed by it, and I'm sorry. That conversation isn't limited to my wife, to my kids, or to my family members. There are even people in this shul that I have to muster the courage to sit with and say that because I've wronged you. I'm far from perfect and I make lots of mistakes and I need to model, just like all of you, the times when I was wrong, the times when I didn't get it right. And of all the things I've ever done in my life and all the things I do every day of the year, the hardest is that walk. Well, I can count on probably one finger, maybe two, how many people who have hit send on the email, or said the nasty comment, or I've been the punchline of a joke, or you have too, I'm just using me as an example for something that's emblematic for you too, who've mustered up the courage to have the talk or the walk with me. And that's what real courage looks like. That's what leadership is about. And that is the thing that will define us in the future. Just like the story I told you when we started Kol Nidre, how many of us are going to be shaped by those hurtful things, and how many will be shaped by the courage and other musters to make a difference? I believe. And life will be judged a lot more for the courage that we demonstrate by standing on a podium, by taking the walk, and by having the talk. We'll be judged so much more favorably than we will by those who sit in the corner and play it safe. Be courageous and make a difference. The fourth thing that I think I think 
is that life moves so damn fast. And no matter how hard I have tried and what techniques I have applied, I cannot stop the hands of time. Dory and I are in the midst of planning my daughter Evie's bat mitzvah for next October, please God. Clear your calendars. <laughs> the first time we came here, we were recently married. We had no kids. The second year we were here, Eve was in utero. And the third year, she was a little three-month-old. And now, please God, it's her bat mitzvah. As I said, I'm Rosh Hashanah, and it's worth repeating, it is surreal for me to stand here and to look out on all of you and to see so many people who, when I first came here, your kids were in college, maybe finishing high school. Then they're off to professional degrees. Then they come with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a partner. Then there's a wedding we officiate at. And then I see you beaming from ear to ear as you're holding a little one in your hands. And it seems like 20 minutes ago that we were all sitting here, at least I was, for the very first time. I find I spend so much time in life anticipating tomorrow and preparing for these moments, and I sneeze, and they've already passed me by. My niece has been engaged for 18 months, and when she got engaged, I thought, 18 months, so much of life will happen in 18 months. Please God, she's being married two weeks from now. And those 18 months happened faster than a Concorde jet. And those of you who have hair that is grayer than mine know exactly what I'm talking about. And those of you who have hair that is less gray than mine, prepare yourselves. Because it's going to go quickly. And I tell you this not to share that inevitable fact. I tell you this because so much of that life that goes so quickly is missed if we don't soak it up. And as I shared on Rosh Hashanah, it is really those little moments, those little mile markers and milestones and events with the people that matter the most that are more memorable than anything else in the world. Those moments when a child gets their sidur at religious school or at Schechter and their grandparent stands on the bima and takes a picture with them. And that picture, which becomes the tangible memory that we hold on to forever. It is those moments that remind us how quickly time goes. It is those moments that remind us how fragile life is too. And those who are battling illnesses, who are told six to nine months, are facing those same hands of time that are moving so quickly. And it's a reminder to each and every single one of us. Carpe diem, seize the moment, seize the day, soak up the things that matter most. You all don't need a sermon on what matters most. All of you in this room know it. Just don't forget it. Because if you can't stop the hands of time, make sure you ride it so that each moment is meaningful and memorable. The last thing that I think I think on this new year of 5776 is that anniversaries are important. And today marks the 50th anniversary of a watershed moment for Jews in America. It was 50 years ago today on the Jewish calendar that Sandy Koufax refused to pitch on Yom Kippur. Now I ask you, 
speaking of hands going fast, for those of you who remember that day, was there anything except the Six-Day War that that helped shape the identity of a Jew in America more than Koufax not pitching in the World Series? Anything? Now keep in mind when it was that Koufax decided not to pitch in the World Series. I don't think there were any owners of any sports teams at that time that were Jewish. I think many schools at that time had quotas of how many Jews could attend. And none of those schools, none of them, had Jewish studies programs except Brandeis and maybe a selection at Columbia. Jewish country clubs didn't exist back then because Jews weren't allowed. But today, the Jewish country clubs, they're the most coveted. There are no quotas in school anymore for how many Jews can attend Harvard or Tulane or Columbia or Cornell or Syracuse or Wisconsin. And every single one of the schools I mentioned, plus thousands of others, have departments that are dedicated to Jewish studies. That's incredible. And that happened in 50 years. A blink of an eye. And that is an incredible feat. As I spoke about in years past, 50, 70, 80 years ago, the idea of a Jew having any sense of recognition in the world of royalty in America would be unheard of. But think of this simple fact. Kennedy, Biden, Clinton, and Gore all have kids that married Jews. That intermarriage rate which is rising, is the key sign that Jews have made it in the world. Now, I want to be abundantly clear for anyone who would choose to misinterpret this statement. There is nothing that I believe in my heart where I would ever celebrate or encourage interfaith marriage. I've been standing on this bima for years, promoting J-Date, and sitting in my office for weeks at a time, plugging in numerical codes and handing them out to all the appropriately single people in our shul who want to get on J-Date. And last year, we had three people in the same calendar year of different backgrounds, some who were widows and widowers, some who were in their midlife, and some who were beginning, who all met because they got on J-Date from this shul. So I believe in endogamy. I believe in Jews marrying Jews. I'm just looking at the sociological phenomenon of what it looks like when Jews have arrived in a society Because when they arrive in a society, we have the most coveted country clubs, we have programs at universities, we have no quotas at schools, we have a right where we marry all of the royalty and can be part of that societal class, and the rate goes higher. It's a real problem of what it means to arrive. Because on one moment, we want absolute equality, and on the other moment, we want to maintain our sense of being insular and one, and the two don't live together. It reminds me, and I'm not making a reference to the imminence of another Holocaust, but it reminds me of Berlin in 1933, which was the last time we had settled and arrived in any other country. Because in Berlin in 1933, the intermarriage rate was 51%. One out of every two Jews was marrying someone of German background and ancestry who wasn't Jewish. This is not a new phenomenon for us. This is what it means when we arrive. I love it for this one simple reason, not intermarriage, but I love the arrival moment because it's a level of acceptance that we've always strived for. 
Someone in the shul was very generous and they gave us tickets to the Yankees at Mets this Sunday night. Dory and I went. And we had these great seats and we're on the first baseline and I'm looking on the third baseline. And only in New York, on the third baseline, as they play the Yankees, could there be a sign, big sign, right next to the dugout, premier location that says, Gold's Horseradish, the official horseradish of the New York Mets. <laughs> only in New York. Now think about this. 50 years earlier, the entire world shook when Sandy Koufax wouldn't pitch on Yom Kippur. And now, there's an official horseradish to be used at the gefilte fish stand at City Field. What does that mean? It means that we have arrived. But we've arrived recently. We've arrived within 50 years. And the truth of the matter is that we have been shaped for thousands of years, thousands of years, as a people who have been oppressed, as a people who've been different, as a people who have had to respond to being the other. And we don't know how to act in a place of arrival. We don't know what it is to arrive and still be committed to endogamy, still be committed to marrying Jews. We don't know what it is to arrive and to blend but keep our own sense of identity because we have been fashioned for the last 2,000 years to be in a shtetl and to be oppressed. And all we have hoped for has finally for the most part, come true. We have our own homeland. And we have uh, thousands of sports owners of teams. We have many Jewish players, and the idea of not playing anymore barely even makes the news, yet alone creates it. And what do we worry about? We worry about the result of that. So the fifth thing that I think I think is that we all need to pick up a pen and write a new narrative. Because I predict the following conversation is going to happen somewhere in Bergen County tomorrow night. And if it doesn't happen in Bergen County, it's going to happen somewhere nearby, and you all will understand the conversation I'm about to tell you. It's a conversation that's going to be shared while you're having a bagel and whitefish and talking about the rabbi's sermon and the holidays. And you're going to say, someone who's over 70 years old, you know, we've decided this year that we're going to make a meaningful contribution to the ADL, to the Anti-Defamation League. And you're going to sit at that table with a schmear on your bagel, and your children and grandchildren are going to be there. And your grandchildren, they give you a lot of nachas. They're very smart people. They go to Cornell, and they go to Penn. And they look at you, and they say, Bubby, Zadie, I think it's so great that you're being philanthropic. But what the hell is the ADL? And you say, oh, how do you not know what the ADL is? You went to Schechter. How could you not know what the ADL is? They've never heard of it. And you respond, it's easy. It's the Anti-Defamation League. And they say, ah, what is that? And what does it do? And you respond, it defends Jews from being oppressed and being pushed away and being made to feel like the other. And they start laughing at you and they say, why in the world, Bubby, would you give money to them? when there are so many important causes to give to. That conversation is happening already, if it's not going to happen tomorrow. And what the 
phenomenon of the world we live in today that's never, ever, ever happened before in our history is not that we have a new narrative. Narratives have always changed. The narrative of Israel from 48 to 67 is wildly different than the narrative from 67 to 73, which is different than 73 to 80. Our narrative as Jews from where we were at the turn of the century to where we were when Sandy Koufax wouldn't pitch is wildly different to where it is from today till then. That's not what's new. What's new is one simple incredible fact that we take for granted and don't look at anymore. And the fact has to do with life expectancy. That never before, at the same table, was there someone supporting the ADL and someone who didn't understand its existence talking to one another at the same time. And it's not limited to the ADL. It's the same thing when it comes to Israel. Because the Bubby and the Zaidi look at Israel and say, we better support Israel because there might not ever be a state of Israel again and we remember when there wasn't. And the grandkids, who are amazing kids, Jewishly educated, supportive, smart, say, but Israel has to stop being an oppressor and an aggressor. When it comes to the issue of Iran, it comes to the issue of interfaith marriage, it comes to whatever issue is on the plate, this is the conversation that will be had. A conversation with the octogenarian is having a conversation with the 20-year-old, and they both have firm footing to stand on. It's not a case that they are naive and they don't understand. It's a case that their world that they were brought up in is wildly different than the world of the 80 and 90-year-old that is still smart and lucid, involved, and philanthropic. And it's unlike any other time that's ever existed in the history of the Jewish people. And what I worry about is it could happen in one of two ways. The bad way is that it will just veer and divide. And there'll be a division of people. Those who believe that the ADL is our future and those who don't understand its existence. Those who say Israel is the aggressor and those who say Israel can do no wrong. Those who say the Iran deal is our best deal and we should grab it and those who say the Iran deal is the beginning of the end of the state of the Jewish people. Or we could do something bold. We could do something authentic. We could do something honest and we could do something courageous. And we could pick up a pen and we can write a new narrative for today. A narrative that is more detailed. A narrative that is more nuanced. A narrative that will have a few semicolons in it. But a narrative that accepts, appreciates, and understands the 20-year-old at Cornell and Penn and the vantage point that they were born into, and accepts, appreciates, and understands the vantage point of the octogenarian who knew a world before the state of Israel and remember when Sandy Koufax didn't pitch. Because they both matter to our Jewish identity. And sadly, so many people are writing another history out of the books. They're tearing them out. And that is a tragedy. This is a unique time in our history. We've never had a moment like this where everyone sat at the table together, figuratively breaking bread and having these conversations. And it matters. So pick up a pen. Be inspired by Pope Francis like I am. And be an authentic leader. Speak sincerely and honestly from your heart. And stop nasty talk. Refute it with positive talk, with encouraging words, with appreciation for another person and disagreement on merits. 
and be courageous, not cowardly. Say what you believe and be firm, but be sure anything you would ever write to another is something you're comfortable saying to their face. And if you ever write something that you shouldn't, then say it appropriately or apologize like a mensch, as my mother and father would say. Make sure you take time and realize how fast life is moving and pick up that pen and write that nuanced narrative. It's harder than other things we've written before, but if we incorporate these other four things that I think I think and I hope you think too, then we have a responsibility and an opportunity to inherit our future and to make this Jewish world that we will inherit and those kids that spoke tonight are gonna inherit to make it a place that can bring us pride and satisfaction. May that be God's will. Amen.